We're in the book of Ezekiel tonight, Ezekiel chapter 7. I know it's going to sound strange um, because of the nature of the book. The subject of the book is fairly similar thematically. Um, I'm enjoying the book. It's a challenge for me. Um, I'm learning a lot. And everything in the Bible, what um, what does Paul say both in Romans and in 1 Corinthians 10, I think? These things are written for our instruction. So Ezekiel chapter 7, which is a fairly heavy, heavy passage... This is written for our instruction for the people of God. And the passage I'm referencing, the chapter I'm referencing, if you have a chance to look at it, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 14, there's a whole section of um, the judgments that came upon the, the children of God and um, testifying that a great number of the children of God were professing believers, but they were not possessing believers. And, and, and the text will say, and this was written for our instruction. So even Ezekiel chapter 7 Though I'm going to tell you many, many times throughout the sermon, probably as a Christian, there's no condemnation in Christ. Christ has saved us from these things. But this is still here in the word of God for us. Ezekiel chapter 7. Beginning to read at verse 1. This is the holy word of our holy God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, an end is coming on the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways and bring all your abominations upon you. For my eye will have no pity upon you, nor will I spare you. But I will bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a unique disaster. Behold, it is coming. An end is coming. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Behold, it is come. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come, the day is near, tumult rather than joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will shortly pour out my anger upon you and spend my anger against you, judge you according to your ways, and bring on you all your abominations. My eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I do the smiting. Behold the day. Behold, it is coming. Your doom has gone forth, the rod has budded, arrogance has blossomed, violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, none of their people, none of their wealth, nor anything eminent among them. The time has come, the day has arrived, but not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is against all their multitude. Indeed, the seller will not regain what he has sold as long as they both shall live, for the vision regarding all their multitude will not be averted, nor will any of them maintain his life by his iniquity. They have blown the trumpet, made everything ready, and no one is going to the battle. For my wrath is against all their multitude. The sword is outside, and the plague and the famine are within. He who is in the field will die by the sword. Famine and the plague will also consume those in the city. Even when their survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, each over his iniquity. All hands will hang limp, and all knees will become like water. They will gird themselves with sackcloth, and shuddering will overwhelm them. Shame will be on all their faces, and baldness on all their heads. 
They will fling their silver into the streets, and their gold will become an important thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. They have transformed the beauty of his ornaments into pride, and have made images of their abominations and their detestable things with it. Therefore I will make it an abhorrent thing to them. I will give it into the hand of the foreigners as plunders, and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane it. And I will also turn my face from them, and they will profane my secret place. Then robbers will enter and profane it. Make the chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Therefore I will bring the worst of the nations, and they will possess their houses. I will also make the pride of the strong ones cease, and their holy places will be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be added to rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will be lost from the priest and the council from the elders. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with horror, the hands of the people of the land will tremble. According to their conduct, I will deal with them, and by their judgments I will judge them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Almighty God, that you would guide me, thou, my great Jehovah, and you would guide my thoughts, the meditation of my heart, the words of my lips, that I would speak what is true according to this text, and that all of us, Lord, would have the requisite eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe this, Lord, as, as terrible as this passage is. May we see that this truly is what is deserved for sin. And only in Christ Jesus are we saved from such a, a fate. We acknowledge you, Almighty God, that you are holy and just. And we rejoice exceedingly that you are holy and merciful in Christ. Amen. Well, the theme, the theme is, um, the, the theme is is um, is evident. I've taken the title of my sermon, and this is my. I'll just kind of show my cards a little bit. The way that I preach is I preach through books, obviously, and and when I come to look at a section, we're dealing with a chapter at a time. Or if I'm in a New Testament epistle, the way that we are in the morning, I pre- I have a preaching portion that I'm looking at and I'm looking for certain themes or sub-themes, I usually take my titles straight from the text. And tonight's no difference. The, the title of the sermon, I, I'm not tricky, I'm, I'm not very insightful. Um, I've taken it straight from the text. I don't know what he said three or four times, maybe even five. Um, the end will come, the end will come, the end will come, the end will come, the end has come. And so hence the title of my, um, my, my sermon when we think of this prophet essentially being told by God to tell the people in a sermon, the end has come. I'll probably show my age. Many of us, I don't know, I'm 57. Many of us, maybe at least in my age, when we think of this kind of a proclamation, the end has come, the end as you know it has come. In my mind, I I think of a little cartoon figure of a prophet. And he's wearing, uh, we called them sandwich boards when I was a kid. You wear a sign on the front and a sign on the back, and on the sign, or the fellow's carrying a sign, and he says, the end is near. He's some kind of wide-eyed, 
fanatical-looking prophet-like figure out in the city square saying, the end is near, the end is near. Many of us are familiar with that kind of an idea of a man predicting some cosmological cataclysmic end of the world. But that's not really what we're looking at here. This is not some cosmological cataclysmic end of the world. This is a divine end of things. Um, God's bringing this. This isn't just some, even the hurricanes and even the tornadoes, those are brought by the hand of our Lord. But this is a divine end. And I mentioned the cartoon figure because usually we think of, so, you know, who, who, who's kind of this denunciatory preacher preaching judgment and veins popping out of his head? It's kind of cartoonish. But, beloved, we're clearly not looking at a cartoon character. Um, this isn't a cartoon. When we come to Ezekiel chapter 7, we're looking at the prophet Ezekiel, and we're looking at the holy word of our holy holy God. This is just as true as John 3.16. This is the, this, the scripture. And God gives the scripture to his church, both to bring us to Christ, to build us up in Christ, to keep us in Christ. And so this is for, for, for us. So it's the prophet being inspired by the Lord <clears throat> to tell us that the end is near. It's the holy, infallible word of God. It's less of a pleasant passage for me to preach than, say, a John 3.16. I would much rather preach John 3.16. Um, but this is just as true as John 3.16. So we maintain that the Bible is infallible. It doesn't have any errors. It's inerrant. It's inspired. <coughs> and so it is. So even though there may be subjects in the scripture and I have them and you have them, that are perplexing or they hurt us when we look at them or we would rather not consider them. This would be a passage, I, if I was sitting around on a Sunday afternoon, this would not be the first passage I would pick up and say, you know, I think I just want to warm my, warm my heart looking at Ezekiel chapter 7. But we can't deny that it is the word of, of God. And um, <clears throat> God throughout the passage will say that he will be the agent that brings this particular end, and we, we know that it's upon his own people. It's not upon expressly the heathen. It is possible to be attached to the church, but not to be attached to Christ. You're attached to church by water baptism. You're attached to Christ by being born again and having faith in Christ. I'm not degrading the church. I'm not degrading the sacraments. But what we're looking at is what the Apostle Peter has said, and judgment begins with the household of God first, and such it is. So the denunciation here that we're looking from chapter 2 of Ezekiel clear through to here, this is against Jerusalem. This is against the people of Judah. And the people that will do, the people that will be the rod of, of judge, judgment will be the people of Babylon, even Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> so when you come to the business, and we're just going to, I'm going to kind of look thematically at the business of end or the judgment day, which is this is, this chapter is typological of Judgment Day, which is why we read from our confession. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter, 30, chapter 32, Life After Death, What Happens When We Die. Chapter 33, Judgment Day, very short um, chapter, three articles, three, three paragraphs, and they're sober, sobering. Um, but just as we looked at in the Apostle Paul this morning, in the second letter to Timothy, <clears throat> he, he concludes that letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something terrible for the unbeliever. It hasn't even entered our minds how terrible, but it's something wonderful for the unbeliever. 
but the terribleness of that day actually will magnify the mercy that God has on vessels of mercy. You, you remember Romans chapter 9. He has vessels of wrath, unbeliever. He has vessels of mercy, believer. When he manifests his righteous just, justice and judgment against the unbeliever, wrath, it actually magnifies the mercy, the grace, the love that we receive. So as frightening as this is, even to the believer, it will redound to the glory of God and it will show us how much Christ has done for us. But as regards to the preaching of judgment, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. I didn't grow up in the Christian church. I understand, but I am at least aware of people's disinclination to this kind of a chapter. Many people would say, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God that has judgment like this. Or they'll say something like this. I have people in my family that say this. This is not my, my God. My God doesn't do things like this. Well, the difficulty with saying something like that is what? <laughs> you don't have another God to pick from. You, you may have a God that you made up, but it's not the God of the Bible. Only the God of the Bible is the true and the living God. So this is God. Um, although many people would mock this. They would say, oh, this is, this is not going to happen. There will be no great judgment. There will be no the end, as God tells Ezekiel to say, the end is coming. And there will be no end for what? God tells the people the reason he's going to bring judgment. And he says over and over again, for your abominations, for your sin, for your iniquity. You remember the Apostle Paul when he was walking through Athens, very learned place, very enlightened place. And in chapter 17 of, of Acts, he's preaching them to Christ. And they're like, oh, this is an interesting thing. And when did they say, you know what? We, we think this is silly. We're not going to listen anymore. When he preached this, he said, there's coming a day when the Lord will judge all people through judge Christ. There's coming a day when he will judge people for their sins. And the people said, no, no, this is just, we, we were here for inter- to listening to something interesting religiously. This judgment business is silly. There, there really isn't going to be a judgment. I would argue, beloved, the better part of the world doesn't believe something like this will occur. And I'm sad to say, I think there are large chunks of professing Christians that would mock this. They would say, clearly, this is not going to happen. Now, the Apostle Peter tells us how people reject the truth of this. Um, they, they do it this way. Second Peter chapter 3, and you know, you'll know the passage. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, and we are in the last days, uh, mockers will come with their mocking. This is even in the visible church. Knowing, following after their lusts, that's key, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, it continues just as it was from the beginning. So they're obviously saying, okay, so where is the return of Jesus? And connected with the return of Jesus is what? Is judgment day. When Christ comes back, he comes back initially for judgment day, and there's going to be two lines, a line on the left, a line on the right. A line on the left is going to hear depart. A line on the right is going to hear come. And then we enter into the, the joy of our, our master, our heavenly father. Many people say, this is not going to happen. So Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a judgment day for sin, just like Ezekiel is typifying. Has it happened? Where is it? Where is Jesus is coming? Well, beloved, this is the same argument people use against the resurrection from the dead. They'll say to you, so you think as a Christian someday your body is going to come out of your grave and be joined to your perfected spirit and 
and you're going to spend eternity in glory with your Lord. Yeah, that's exactly what I believe is going to happen. Oh, okay. So how many people have you seen get out of the grave before? This is why they deny the resurrection of Jesus. We have never seen it. Has anybody ever seen anybody get out of a grave? Well, just because we haven't seen Jesus get out of a grave, or just because we haven't seen another human being get out of a grave, doesn't mean it hasn't ever happened. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead. And I, I would say this. So when people say, so judgment day, have you ever seen anybody have a judgment day? Have you ever seen it? If I don't see it, I'm from Missouri. I'm not from Missouri, but the show me state. Show me. I've never seen it. I don't believe it. Beloved, that's not true. We believe lots of things that we've never seen. Everyone in this room believes that Lincoln was shot. Has anybody in this room seen Lincoln shot? Anybody's mama or grandmother seen Lincoln get shot? No. Why do we believe it? Because it's in our history books. So when someone says, I don't believe Judgment Day, I don't believe it, it's not intellectual. The problem is not intellectual. The problem is spiritual. It's a Romans 8 verse 7. The problem is the heart. They have a problem with God. They don't want God to be God, and they don't want God to be this kind of God. A God who is so holy that he hates sin, and a God is so righteous that he has to, that he has to judge sin. And the only way that we can escape this is finding mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. But we do. The, 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 the reason I'm, I'm saying the, the kind of introductory things that I'm saying, we all recognize that this is, not a, this is not a readily received truth of God's word, certainly in the larger cultural context and not even in the church. There are lots of professing Christians that would say, well, God really doesn't do these things, but we just read them. And he clearly he clear, clearly does. And when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is taking the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He clearly does do these things. And so when you walk through the paragraph, very similar theme, it's the end is coming, the end is near, the end is, is, is uh, unavoidable, uh, the end is unthwartable, the end is universal. That's all that's going on. He's unpacking that one similar uh, theme. And as I mentioned, this is a foreshadow, this particular chapter, and I know I'm just looking at it thematically, this is a chapter of what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Or there's a place in the Bible that says the day of vengeance. Again, a a difficult subject, admittedly, but the Bible does talk about the day of the Lord. Malachi uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Who's Elijah the prophet? John the Baptist. Before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 63. Let me read this. This is what this is typifying. Who is this who comes from Edom? This is going to be the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This language is picked up in the book of Revelation. With garments of glowing colors from Basra, the one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Speaking of Christ's apparel being red. In your garments like the one who treads out the winepress. This is, Roman, this is excuse me, Revelation 14 and Revelation 19. Why are your garments red? Because I've, I've been treading out the winepress. I've, tr- I've trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Then the lifeblood is sprinkled up to my garments and stained on my raiment. 
for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. Both of that ideas. This is, an, this is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. So Christ is the one that will take vengeance upon his enemies, upon those who don't find forgiveness in him. They don't bend the knee to King Christ and the day of his redemption has come. Means the enemies of God will be done away with and the friend and the children of God will be welcomed in. That event is simultaneous. We see it in the, we, we, we see it in the, the liberation from Egypt. The enemies of God have, are, are killed in the flood. The children of God are saved through, excuse me, through the, um, uh, through, uh, the Red Sea. And the same with the flood. And so what we have here in Ezekiel is a foreshadow. It's a, it's a, it's a foretaste of the day when Jesus Christ comes back and he, he will take vengeance. This is one of the reasons I say, as a practical application of this, sometimes we as Christians, individually as Christians in our lives and then corporately in our larger context, are tempted to take things in our own hands. When things don't, and I've heard this before, not by anybody in this room in particular, but a couple of years ago, maybe more than a few, there were some people that thought, well, you know, things are going squirrely in the country uh, and, and, you know, the powers that be are, are, are antichrist powers and we should join a militia, something like this. And I, I said, whoa, 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 we are sheep. We are not, we are not lions and tigers and bear. We are, we are sheep. We are to have sheep-like spirits. We're, we're, we are doves. We do not wield a sword. The state wields the sword. The church wields the word of God. We are sheep. Do not be tempted to take personal vengeance. Do not be tempted to join collectively to take personal vengeance. That is not our business. The Bible says what? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But we, we think he's going slow. That's his business. And so, yes, this is a terrible day. But the day is God's day, not our day. No individual Christian is to take vengeance. And no a collection of Christians are to put the sword in their hand. We are lambs and we are doves. Um, in, this, in this day, God will make everything, everything right. And when he says over and over and over and over again, the end, the end, the end, the end. And again, we're just considering it thematically. The end of what? What is offending the Lord so much in this passage? He says it variously. Abominations, iniquities, sins. That's what offends him so much. That's what offends him. Sin, even for the true believer. We, we, we love the Lord. Even for the true believer. We hate sin, but we hate sin this much. And we love God and we love God this much. How much does God hate sin? He hates sin that much. We can't imagine the intensity of the hatred that God has for sin. Because we really can't grasp the, the infinite holiness of God. Remember when Isaiah's in the presence of holy God, what does he do? He throws himself on his face. When people are in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, what does John on Patmos do? He throws himself on his face because of the holiness of God. God is so infinitely holy and righteous that he has this kind of intense hatred against sin. I'm not saying this to depress anyone or to make anyone inordinately frightened, but our God is so holy. We We can't have a high enough view of the holiness of God. If we had a higher view of, if I had a higher view of God's holiness, would I trifle with sin the way I trifle with sin? Would I be bopping down the road listening to songs that I've heard in my in my college, 
and, and taking pleasure by things that put Jesus on the cross? No. And when the Spirit convicts you, oh, He purchased me. He owns me with, with His precious blood. I can't be listening to filthy songs because He's holy and I'm holy in Him. So it's the holiness of God that says to the professing people of God that don't love Him, really, the end is coming, the end is coming, the end is coming. The end is coming to your sin. I've let you play with your sin this long and now I'm going to stop it, the end. The end of your pretending that you're lovers of the Lord, the end is coming. So in the church there are wheat and tares, goats and sheep, the true believer and then the hypocrite. God says to the hypocrite in the old church, there's going to come a day when I'm going to tell you no more play acting. The word hypocrite in the ancient Greek means to be a play actor. And God will say to the play actor, today's the day. No more playing. Today's the day. No more playing with sin. You remember in the previous chapters, he said, you're up on the mountains. You have your idols. You come down into the temple and say, oh, Jehovah, Jehovah. We love Jehovah. And then off on the mountains you go with your paramour, your false god, and your false idol. And God says, I'm watching the whole kit and caboodle. And when he says to the prophet, now, now put yourself in the prophet's position. Even this morning's passage was not necessarily fun because it touches on my job to you, to the people of God. And it looks like I'm beating up the people of God, but I, I don't think I am. But it's not a... It's not, I mean, put yourself in Jer- Ezekiel's position. Go tell the people, you waited too long. You waited too long. The day of grace is over. Now it's the day of judgment. Imagine this is why even as a New Testament preacher the Bible says not many should be quick to be teachers Um, because there are things here that just the intensity the weight of the responsibility that you have to act as God's spokesperson to tell people things that you love that you know are going to be incredibly painful to hear and so Ezekiel was a man like us uh, Jeremiah, all the men uh, Isaiah preaching the same kind of idea so he is telling them, the end is coming. No more rejecting the holiness of God. No more rejecting the judgment of God for the unholiness of man. Now, you may think, well, why does God need to tell the professing people of God this? Um, <laughs> the simple reason is because they're not listening to the word of God. They're, they're, they're in their sin, and they won't get, let go of it. In chapter 1 in Ezekiel, he calls Ezekiel. In chapter 2, you can do this this week. Go through and look thematically at chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, 5, 6, 7. God has one message in every one of those chapters. He says to Jerusalem, you're living in your sin. He says a number of times in our passage, your abominations are within you. Imagine hearing one sermon. I know that you're sinning. I'm a holy God. I want you to stop sinning. And if you don't, I'm going to bring judgment. That's sermon one. Hmm, interesting, Lord. That's very interesting. I have no intentions of stopping. You come back for the next Lord's Day, and you have a very similar sermon. Oh, by the way, now I'm going to tell you the kind of sin that you've been involved in, and I really am quite displeased with it, and I really would like you to stop it, or I really am going to bring judgment. Thank you very much for sharing, Lord. I have no intention of stopping. And this goes on for a week. He's preaching over a year. These sermons are stretched out over a year. So for 52 Lord's Days, as it were, you hear this. And you, you, you never 
repent. You never put down your sin. You never do real business with the Lord. You never believe. You just show up. And when judgment day comes, can you say to God, I, 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 I never knew this was going to happen. I never knew. And what will he say? I sent you a prophet for 52 Lord's Days. He preached 52 sermons that I told him to preach. And you didn't listen to any of them. And so when you show up on Lord's Day 3 and 4 and 5 and you say to the preacher, why are you preaching the same message? And he'll say, what? Because you didn't listen to the first 2, 3, 4, 5, 52. God is so long-suffering. When we come to a passage like this, this is where the unbeliever recoils and says, see, your God is vitriolic, your God is pugnacious, your God is mean-spirited, blah, 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 blah. He's quick to anger. Oh, no. The Lord is so slow to anger. So long-suffering, so compassionate. He has been busy telling them since Isaiah over a hundred years ago. You look at the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 13. He says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. Chapter 13 of Isaiah. 120 years earlier. So for 120 years, he says to the church, you're living like a Gentile. I'm bringing judgment. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. Is that... If someone delayed doing something for 120 years, would you say that that person's quick on the draw? Oh, no. Oh, no. One of the epistles to Peter, I forget, first or second, he says, God is so long-suffering, so patient, perhaps leading some to repentance. Now, remember, when God says judgment, 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 almost in every passage, every chapter, he'll say, but I'll have a little stump I'll have a little elect remnant and those will be the ones that will be my people. Those will be saved. And so when we're coming here, we are learning the vast percentage of the people here are unbelievers and judgment will come, but he will always retain that elect remnant that he, he will save. But he is telling them, I am indeed a holy God. I am Jehovah. I am everywhere present and I want my people who bear my name to live to live holily. Or, or verse 3, I will send my anger against you. I will judge you. And look at that. According to your abominations, my I will not pity you. I will bring your ways upon you. There's a, there's a Latin phrase. I don't know Latin, but I know this phrase. Lex talionis. It means uh, eye for an eye, ju- exact justice. The notion is these people have earned what God is bringing on them for their sins. This is not Jehovah's fault, as it were. You can't, well, you're such a mean God, that's why you're doing this. No. God is a holy God, and the people have been stubborn and lived in their sin. They've not repented. They've not believed. They've kept, their sin is their God, and they rejected their God. And God is saying, I am going to give you exactly what you are due, and what is due is justice. And no, he says, and no, I will pity you. Even right now, the unbeliever, does not have what's expressed here. Even right now, the unbeliever does not have what's here. Um, Matthew chapter 5. The sun, the rain, Acts chapter 14. Seasons, crops. Even the unbeliever that says, I don't believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can they wake up and have a hot meal? Are they wearing warm clothes? Um, Can they enjoy the laughter of their little baby? Sure. Is that a kindness? Is that some kind of common providential benevolence? Yes, it is. Is it grace? No, it is not. It's common kindness. 
they're tasting even just a common goodness. When this day comes, the day of judgment, there will be no pity, no good goodness mingled with the justice of God. Even right now, the rankest unbeliever, they think, well, I, you know, I, I feel the warm, I see the beautiful sky, you do. But on the day when the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead, for those apart from Jesus, judgment day will be mingled or, or, with, with no mercy. There'll be no mercy. I, I almost don't have the requisite vocabulary for it. You, you know the passage I'm thinking of in Matthew chapter 25, the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. You know that. And the foolish virgins have no oil. They're not born again. They don't have any oil in their lamps. And they've been told the bridegroom's going to come, the bridegroom's going to come. There's no oil in their lamp. And the five uh, wise virgins, they have, they're born again. They have oil in their lamps. They have faith in Christ. They are regenerate. And the bridegroom comes. And, and when they enter in and the door's shut, and the foolish virgins say, open the door, let us in. And what does the bridegroom say? It's too late. The door's shut. So if I could put it this way, there's a door, there's a day of grace, a day wherein men and women and boys and girls can be saved in Christ. And when that day is over, this is what he says. The day is coming, the end is coming, the end is coming, the end has come. So when people, when we tell them, repent of your sins, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And they think, manana, 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 manana. There is coming a day when there'll be no more calls Come to Christ, look to Christ, believe in Christ, be forgiven in Christ. It will be stand before judge Christ. So remember this morning we looked at the business of time. We all have a a limited quantity of time. None of us knows when our quantity of time will be extinguished. To live apart from Jesus Christ is to literally, literally walk over the precipice of this that we're presuming upon the goodness and the grace of God now in this life. But this text is teaching us that, yes, God is long-suffering. Yes, he's compassionate. Um, Yes, all of those things are true. But notwithstanding, God says, there is a day when I will come back and I will judge all sin in sinners. And this typifies that. It will be the absence of God's pity. And then... When we look here, he tells them in a number of places, the money is not going to save you. Your eminent men are not going to save you. Your armies are not going to save you. You think you're going to have an army. This isn't even a battle. What's depicted here is not a battle. Um, The Babylonians are are besieging uh, Jerusalem. It's not a battle. It's an execution. And so he says, your wealth, your, your, your eminency, all of these things, nothing's going to avail in this day. That's the idea one of the reasons why the unbelievers in the church think that they're okay is they're trusting in their things. They say outwardly they're trusting in the Lord, but inwardly the Lord says, you're not really trusting in me. You're trusting in your wealth. You're even trusting in the temple. Not trusting in the God of the temple, just trusting in the edifice. Um, Trusting in the externals. It's like the sacraments. If the sacraments don't bring you to Christ, there's going to be no spiritual benefit. So we can trust in the trappings of the church, even in the, tra- even in, in the external administration of the word. I listen to the Bible. That's great. Do you come to Christ in the preaching of the Bible? Do you love God in the preaching of the Bible? No, I just hear it. That's great. 
Well, I've been baptized. I take the Lord's Supper. Great. Does that conform you increasingly into the image of Jesus? No, I just have a wet head and bread and wine in my stomach. So it's if the word doesn't bring us to Christ and the sacraments don't build us up in Christ, it will, I would argue it, it will work. It, will, or it won't be a blessing. It will be a curse. But the people are trusting in the externals. We're Jews. We have circumcision. We have the temple. And God says, don't trust in your money. Don't trust in your eminent men. Don't trust in your armies. Don't even trust in the building. And the Jew would say, don't trust in the building. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. This is what? In the 800s. Jesus said the same exact thing. The professing children of God, the professing household of faith, they didn't have faith. And in Jesus' day, Jesus came out of the temple and said to his guys, you see the temple? And they saw it's amazing. Oh yeah, Jehovah's temple. Amazing. He said, it is amazing. I'm going to tear the whole thing down. And the people are like, what are you talking about? This is the temple. The Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, the day of atonement, the high priest. What are you talking? And what is God going to say? You turned it into a, a, a den of thieves. It's Ichabod. The Lord is gone. I'm going to do away with the whole thing. You're, tr you're not trusting in the Lord. You're trusting in things. And so this has some ramifications for us. It's easy as professing people. Oh, what's that song we sing? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. We only really mean that song when we don't have silver or gold. <laughs> when you have the geld in your pocket, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold and the geld's busting out of your pockets. Really? If I take it away from you, was Corey Tim Corey Tim Boom in Ravensbrook? You never know Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. It, it, talk is cheap. And God says to them, you're really trusting in your riches. You're really trusting in your eminent men. You're really not a believer. And I'm really going to come. And I'm going to bring judgment. Jesus speaks against the deceit. This is Matthew chapter 13. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth. They stumbled in it. And then as far as the eminent men, well, we have this powerful fellow, this powerful fellow. We're America. Who could take over America? How could America ever suffer this kind of judgment? We're the church. We have Bibles. We have sacraments. I want you to think of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Remember those churches, the seven churches? What are those churches right now? They're mosques. They're mosques is what those places are. What happened? Jesus says, if this is just playtime... I walk among the lampstands of my church. What does he say he will do? I'll take away the lampstand. I'm gone. This is Ichabod. This is what God says. It's judgment. So he says to them, the money is not going to save you because the Babylonians won't take a bribe and the eminent men won't save you. He says over and over again, violence, violence, violence. The, the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas, which is interesting. The group Hamas. Why would you name your group Hamas? But it's violence. The Babylonians are coming as God's, the Lord's agent of justice. And so he is calling us away from trusting in temporal things and money. Obviously, for those of us with faith, this is a call for us to trust in the Lord and to not be tempted to turn aside to those things. And he says in verse five, verse 7, excuse me, instead of joy, it will be doom. There's a... 
Our catechism question, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The catechism of the unbeliever is to glorify self and to enjoy self forever. And this, again, is in the professing people of God. They're living for pleasure. And they're living for this outward expression of joy. And God says to them, a day is coming when all of this wonderful happiness and giddy joy is going to be taken away because you've frittered away the day of grace. And you've played in your sin and you haven't dealt this with the Lord. And God says, I'm going to turn the joy into what? Into mourning. Into mourning. I'm not going to quote it, but it's in the book of Revelation chapter 18. This is a verse I am going to quote. So he says to the unbeliever, your current joy will be turned into future mourning. And then Jesus in the Beatitudes, the way that Luke expresses them in chapter 6, says to us as the believer, for those of us who are mourning now, what will we be doing when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back? We will be rejoicing. Luke 6. I'm probably going to close with this. Jesus, turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. So for the believer, the judgment for us is past. Christ has taken it for our sins. We are sinners. And Christ has taken that condemnation. There is no condemnation for a lover of Christ. It's past. When he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was paying for the sins of his people. That's God. The Lord Jesus Christ, with his blood, has saved us from Ezekiel chapter 7. We deserved Ezekiel chapter 7. But in God's great mercy and love, he saved us. Christ took the justice that we got the mercy. So whatever suffering in in lamenting and weeping now, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back on Judgment Day, it will be turned into everlasting shouts of joy for the believer. And then Christ goes on to say in the same sermon, Luke chapter 6, concluding this kind of theme. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort now in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. For all the people that are play actors, that hypocrite, saying they love Christ, saying they love Jehovah, but really loving the paramour of their sin, really bowing and stooping to sin, God says all of the happiness that you may hear have here one day when I come back it will be done away with and our passage ends with in chapter 7 and they will know that I am the Lord those who hear well done my good and faithful servant and they will know that I am the Lord and those who hear depart from me you work of iniquity and they will know that I am the Lord may God be pleased with the preaching of his word